don't stand a chance We don't stand a chance Okay, it is December 21st, 2020. Why am I fucking time stamping this, this edition of the show? Because everyone knows, you know, when you do a podcast, you record an episode, you edit it, you put it up when it's time. I have an episode ready to go up today. But I also had counseling this morning. And in that counseling session, I had a huge breakthrough about my brain and the way I process information. And I don't think it's singular to me. I thought this was important. So... I raced home. I've been home now for five minutes. And the first thing I did was woke my co-host Jared up. Good morning, Jared. Good morning. Um, he has no idea what the fuck we're going to talk about. He has no idea what's happening. But I, I appreciate that you would join me with zero minutes of notice to do this for purely my own satisfaction and needs. Thank you. Oh, I'm, my pleasure. So, um, counseling in itself is such an intimate thing, Jared. You've been part of my life for my entire life. I don't have memories. I have very few memories that you're not part of. And in that, um, and before we go too far, Jared has not had time. I mean, literally, we're so racing into this that I'm sure his dogs will be in the background. There's somebody outside with a leaf blower, but I had to get this out while it's fresh. So forgive anything you hear that's not part of the process. Just understand why it's happening. So, um, it, counseling, you're, it's you and a counselor. Now, that person exists for you as a tool. They don't go home with you. They don't live your life with you. So there's this sense of I'm completely isolated from the rest of my world. Defenses can lower, and I can tell you anything, the deepest, most humiliating shit that has affected me forever, I can tell you. Of course, I'm going to now bastardize and pollute the process by bringing that to anyone who listens to this podcast and you, Jared. I, by telling you it while it's raw and fresh and it's still like my heart's still beating like that pounding feeling of realization uh, that happened. So, you know, I talk all the time about my physical appearance and how that impacts my life, right? And how it impacts my perception of interactions with people. So we're sitting in counseling today and we start talking about locus of control, which for those of you who don't, haven't gone through counseling, that's, do you control your well-being and your feelings and your emotions, or do you let other people? Now, anyone who tells you that they don't let other people are fucking lying to you. You know, Jared, we, we, we know so many people who dress or act outside of what societal expectations and norms are. And we yeah. know a lot of those people do it for the reaction of being outside of the norm, Right. Sure, sure. So the norm is still affecting their perception of their place in the world. They're just choosing to embrace it or not, or, they're in, or to rebel against it or not. You know, it's all the same. We're coping with what we perceive our place to be in the world, right? Right, right. Would you say that's accurate? It's still a, it's still a reaction to what the norm is. It's, it's, the norm doesn't go away for anyone. Well, you know, quote, unquote, norm. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly accurate way of putting it. And so truth and fact are not synonymous. So my life and everybody's life, Jared, your life, everybody listening to this, everybody's fucking life is built up of a series of events that impact us. Traumatic, they can be good, they can be bad. It's us acting and then the world reacting. And that builds our sense of self in a lot of, and you know, so we can say we hold the locus of control over our emotions. But don't be intellectually dishonest. Your place as you see it and your 
you know, the, the quarterback of the football team who walks around, you know, hooking up with every girl in school, he has those feelings of value because of actions he's put out and reactions from other people. The person who is paralyzed to eat lunch at school because they think all face eyes are on them, same thing, right? Yeah, I think some of that may come before they ever get to school too, though. You have a lot of that that builds up at home and by what happens, you know, in your early life, you know, builds a lot of that baggage to, you know, kind of educate you on how to see the world and how to, how to understand how the world sees you. And then that gets reinforced or maybe even can sometimes changed or adjusted by peer groups at school. Right. Absolutely. This is not singular to peer interaction. Right. This is from the second you plop out of your mom to the second you die, your life is interactions and perceiving reactions to your actions. In fact, a lot of people with, who are on the spectrum, that's why they're on the spectrum is they don't see those things. So not understanding those things is very much seen as being outside of what the usual is. And the usual is that people fuck us up on purpose and on accident. And we fuck us up by perceiving interactions, both real and fictitious, right? Yeah, a lot of it's for fictitious. You know, you think, I think, we, I think you've mentioned it before. It's like so many things that we think about about ourselves, nobody else cares. Like they, nobody cares that, that you're doing a certain thing or acting a certain way. Like people don't even notice, but you think it's a huge deal or that everyone's looking at you. I mean, there's a lot of that that goes on. Okay. Well, I'm going to say something here. And it's something you've heard a thousand times from me because I, I'm very open about it, is I had a counseling session maybe 10 years ago where a different counselor asked me, like, how do you feel you're perceived by the world? Describe your impact to the world, you know, of all your actions, a summary of how the interaction back is to you. Like, don't tell me now. Go home. Think about it for a week and come back and tell me. Mm -hmm. And I did. And I said, the whole world wants me around. A few people genuinely like me, but nobody's ever loved me. That's very real and accurate assessment of how I feel. Now, you, I don't want a bunch of fluffy shit about like, I love you and these people love you. And I understand, the logical part of me understands that that is very flawed thinking. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Because remember, fact and truth are not the same. It's not a fact that that's my place. But my truth has always been that that is my place. So we were talking about that a little bit today. And we're just kind of, it felt very informal. And I was bringing up things in my past and he's like, I mean, you can't, you give me these hard luck stories. All, and actually I shouldn't say he, cause it's my counselor's woman. She's like, you can't give me these hard luck stories all the time in such a vague generality. Like talk to me. She's like, when was your first interaction with a member of your sexual community? Like it was her way of saying, I don't want to say opposite sex and pigeonhole you would, but you know, what was right. your first sexual like experience? Like describe it as much as you're comfortable describing it. And in my head, I'm thinking, you know, I have no problem with this. I've t told parts of this story, but you're going to get, the, everyone here is going to get the first story of my first kiss. Summer of 1992. I am uh, seventh grade, getting ready to enter my seventh grade year. And this girl who lived around the street from us was in sixth grade. Now, those of you who didn't grow up with Jared and I, our area, it was very typical lower income suburbia America circa late 80s early 90s we had but in our school structure first through sixth went to school elementary school 
Seventh, eighth, ninth went to junior high, and then tenth, eleventh, twelfth went to high school. So when I was getting ready to enter my seventh grade, I still had a lot of friends at the elementary school that were sixth graders. And my block didn't happen to have any kids in my grade. And pre-texting, you know, Jared, we didn't, our mm -hmm. world was the kids in our neighborhood. If, if I called you and you were at home, you might as well fucking be dead to me because I'm never going to see you again. If you lived outside of a bike ride, the parents didn't drive kids to fucking play dates. Right, in the right. Early 90s. That, was, that was not a thing that happened. Um, so my world was very much these four sixth grade kids and me in seventh grade that lived in the same street. And this one girl comes over one day and we're playing in the cul-de-sac and she says, dude, I have a stepsister. She lives in this rich neighborhood out just outside of Portland, this rich suburb. And my, my, my mom married a stepdad who's got a lot of money. This girl's very cool. I think you'd really like her. And I was like, okay, tell me all about her. So he, he breaks, she breaks her down. Her name's Tracy. I have no problem revealing her name. I actually cleared it with her. It's cool. So Tracy was sold to me as this really cool, pretty awesome chick, right? Yeah. Now, what about my life experience led up to this is what's going to happen next for me that day, right? Well, at that age, you think you're an internal optimist. That's, that's good. That's like, that is. That's everyone's like, oh, you know, get rich quick scheme. That sounds right. Or of course, I'm going to, of course, you know, good things are going to happen to me. You know, that's how you should kind of think of it. It age. is how I did. And so this girl comes the next weekend, you know, because she spent every other weekend of the time they were supposed to spend, she was supposed to spend together. And when this girl comes out to the house and she's like, everything that I thought she was going to be. She was way better looking than me. And because she was in a well-to-do area, a suburb just outside of Portland, she went to like plays and operas and fucking ballets. And she went to fancy restaurants and art galleries. Her dad was well-to-do, so her parents loved doing, like, cool, hip, older people things. So this, it was like, I ran into this completely out of my league in every measurable way girl, right? But she liked me back. So we were boyfriend and girlfriend. Now, when school started, what's the very first thing I said on the very first day to every single kid that I hadn't seen all summer? I have a fucking girlfriend. Of course. Like, and, and I described her. I painted this picture of, like, she's Kelly Kapowski and Jesse Spano enrolled into one, and, but she's better looking than both. And, oh, my God, her words changed the way I perceived the universe. And, yeah, I mean, that's, that's how it's supposed to be at that age, so. Right, and I had no problem with that. Now, their reaction to that was very much the reaction of uh, Emilio Estevez to Anthony Michael Hall in Breakfast Club when he heard when he tells him about the girl he dated in Canada. It, it, I didn't know at the time. I had no way of knowing it. But every fucking unfuckable loser tells the story of the girl at the other school. I didn't know. I had no experience with that. Right. But that's what it very much felt like in the moment. I didn't get met with high fives and cheers. They didn't put me on their shoulders and carry me around the town. But that's what I thought was going to happen, of course, right? And so in my mind, I was thinking to myself, this is every fucking interaction I've ever had. You know, the great Millie Vanilli put it, blame it on the rain. When you have, <laughs> when you have bad interactions, find the thing to blame. Don't blame it on you because that fucking sucks. That hurts. That's hard. So I blame it on being fat. Like, you know, if I meet somebody and I'm like, hey, you're pretty awesome. Let's hang out. And they're like, no. Or I think somebody's supposed to call me back and they don't. I can either say it's because I'm boring and stupid. Or I can say it's because I'm fat. Now, neither are fun, but fat isn't me. That's not my inner being. That's not what makes up my, you know, 
my brain and my psyche, that's my physical presence. And that's much less hard to deal with than, no, you're kind of shitty and I don't like you. That's hard. But I very much at that age even come up to this place where I was like, nobody wants to hitch their wagon to the fat kid. I mean, metaphorically speaking, in reality, a lot of kids try to hitch a lot of fat to me. Like, and if you're going to hitch a wagon to somebody, the fat kid's the kid to do it to, right? But in metaphorically speaking, people weren't willing to hitch their wagon to me. They, they didn't want, I wasn't going to be their boyfriend. I was a very nice guy they liked, but I wasn't going to be their boyfriend. I was a nice kid that kids at school talked to, but they weren't going to invite me over to slumber parties. Because your intimate relationships, especially at that age, are very based on a million factors that are both important and unimportant. As we all go through the life process of refining what's important and what our values are. So I very much realized, oh my God, these people think nobody would hitch their wagon to me. This sucks. So you know, that, was, that was hard. But here's where it gets good. So this girl did not reject me. We had all those like afternoon phone calls. I don't know if you did this, Jared, but like, afternoon is when your parents weren't really home so the phone was kind of up for grabs and so you pick up the phone and call and just lay on your bed and talk to somebody like for two or three hours about nothing yeah the landline phone talking was like a very big deal in the elementary or early junior high well even through junior high and high school because we still didn't have cell phones really uh the courting process it was a big part of it the landline oh absolutely your hand on it yep and that was a commitment you were telling the person, like, I'm willing to occupy my family's only vehicle for outside communication for two hours because you are so special. This girl never did anything to make me feel like I wasn't the coolest guy she ever met. So she calls me. She's like, hey, I'm coming into town next weekend uh, to stay with my sister. Let's go do something. Let's have some fucking fun. Let's go on a date. I was like, yes. Now, I'm not an idiot. Well, I didn't get to, I didn't roll with the cool kids a lot. Like, I had a lot of friends that were the quote unquote cool kids, but. I didn't roll them a ton, but I knew where they, I knew where their natural habitat was. And it's like any community. There's a place where the cool kids are going to be on a Friday night. And it was sunshine pizza. And then they would walk to Aloha theater. And for those who haven't seen, Aloha theater is almost too on the nose for the scenario as a place for this type of thing to go down. Like it's this law. It was built in like the late thirties. It's a lobby with two auditorium doors and two long aisles with a few seats on either side. And then a bunch of seats in the middle. Right. Jared, I'm sure you went there as a kid. Oh, yeah, for sure. It was great. That was the cool kid campground. And the funniest thing about it was none of us knew this at the time, but any adult who would have dared brave that theater on a Friday night, the double feature of the night that this happened, I, because I remember almost everything that's ever happened to me, was the Steven Seagal masterpiece, Under Siege, <laughs> followed by uh, the Robin Williams, Jeff Bridges vehicle of the Fisher King. Now... 25 seventh graders from varying junior highs in the area sitting in an auditorium watching the motherfucking Fisher King. (laughs) Like nobody there thought we were there to watch the movie. Right. It was to us. It was, it was totally innocuous. This is just what people do. We thought we had everybody thinking we're there to watch the movie. Nobody adults wouldn't go in there because they knew this is going to be gross. I don't want any part of what's happening in there. But so we go to the first movie and I'm thinking all the cool kids are going to come and see me with this girl and validate everything I've said. Like I'm going to now be, I'm no longer going to be a fraud. Right. And we walk in the theater and we sit down for the first the- movie. And I want to set the scene a little bit of like, it's pitch black in this theater, except for the screen in front of you. And the whole auditorium reeks of like popcorn, Dracar Noir, and like the 
awkwardly pawed at innocence of adolescent girls. Like that's what the whole fucking theater smells like. And I'm sitting there with her and it, I'm like, I could not have been more centered in my chair. Like my, I look like a Sunday school kid. Like my knees were together and my hands were folded in front of me and I'm drinking my Diet Coke and just sucking in the movie, you know? Because let's be honest, man, I was in seventh grade. I didn't have the tools right. yet to make it, this become an actionable event. And then intermission, she sent me out in the lobby. She's like, hey, dude, could you give me some snacks, yo? So I get up and I walk out and I get some snacks. And, uh, you know, I, I just leave this woman. Okay, she wasn't a woman. She was a girl. <laughs> if she was a woman, the story's way fucking different. <laughs> but she's a girl. She's a girl. She's right. Descriptive terms. Right. And I leave her there in the theater by herself. And I go up and I get the, the things that I'm looking for. And in through the front doors walk, Matt. You know him, I'm not gonna use his last name. Mm-hmm. Casey, and what's her name? I don't know her name. <laughs> so like, well, I remember most things. This one girl's name escapes me. Matt and Casey were like the coolest of the cool kids at our school, right? Like they yeah. were pretty fucking well known as like the, the cast me out. They walk in and they see me and they're like, I was on a friendly base with them. So we start talking and I tell them I'm here with a girl. So they don't really seem to care. They don't seem to believe me 100%, but they don't really care. And I get my snacks and I walk in and I sit down. And I think this is where this event's going to end, right? They sat right in front of us. They like walked down the aisle, sat right in front of me. And that was like, oh shit, everything that I was thinking could happen now has to happen. And it has to happen on like a much faster trajectory than it is happening. And I put my arm around Tracy and she doesn't bad night. She thinks it's great. And I know that uh, what's her name saw it, but Casey and Matt didn't. And I'm just like kind of hanging out there. And maybe 20 minutes of the movie, I realized, okay, this has to fucking happen or I'm going to like the biggest jump ever. So I start like trying to paw at her boob with my arm around her. But you know, like I'm not the most graceful of dudes, especially in seventh grade. So like as I'm reaching around her to try and grab her boob that I can't quite reach, my, bi- my arm, I don't even want to call it a bicep, my, my soft dough mass where a bicep should be, is like banging into the back of her head and like driving her head down towards her lap and like, at one point, when I finally actually touched her boob, I realized my hand has, pu- my arm has pushed her head so that she's almost looking straight down at the floor. Because like, that was the only path, A to B. There was no getting around her head. So she, she grabs my arm and like takes it out from behind her. I'm like, you just fucked this whole thing, bro. This is over for you. But she placed my hand on her inner thigh. My entire body went numb and cold from head to toe because my hand was on her inner thigh. And she put her hand on my inner thigh. And there was a thread that was loose on my jeans, like right at the seam. And she was like fiddling with it. She didn't know. She almost ended the experience for me, so to speak. (laughs) Like it was almost like I almost finished everything that I was there to try to start because of her accidentally pawing at a loose thread and the way that felt. But it was, it was amazing. And I realized like, this might actually happen. You need to do it. You need to, you have like half an hour left. Fucking do it. So I started the countdown in my head. I don't know if you've ever done this, it, like early in age, but like I was like three, two, one, kiss her. Fuck, you're a yeah, coward. I mean, it's trying, you're trying to psych yourself up, you know? That's, the countdown can be part of that. You have to like, you're frozen, right? You have to find a way to decide when the time's gonna be. So right. like, countdowns, like, you know, that's definitely one of the, one of the options. 
And that's exactly what it was. It was like standing on a bridge over a lake. Like I was three, two, one right. jump. But I counted three, two, one in like three minutes worth of three, two, one. Right. And finally, I just start like, I realized that as I'm doing this, it's like a tree that's like kind of cut, but not really. And it's slowly falling over. And I have my left hand on her inner thigh and my right hand's on my thigh. And as I'm tipping, I'm just kind of awkwardly falling on her. And I, I look over at her the whole time and I'm just kind of awkwardly falling in her direction. And she just fucking dives at me and starts kissing me. And I mean, I, I, the things I remember most are that um, I was saturating her in drool and she had to like twice stop and like wipe her lip. Cause you know, like seventh grade makeout is like an hour long marathon of like sore jaws and like chapped lips at the end. It's just awfulness. It's a mess. Yeah. And I'm basically just spitting in her face the whole time as well. And I realized as awesome as this is, I have my eyes open the whole time and I'm surveying the room and nobody knows it's happening. This is like Schrodinger's makeout. Like, did it happen or did it not happen? Both can be true because nobody fucking saw it. Right. So I start kicking the back of Matt's chair with my right foot. And in my mind, I was like, you sly motherfucker. Like, what an innocuous and fucking stealth way to get the attention of your friend and fellow classmate. What really was, was me just pounding the fuck out of the back of this kid's chair with it echoing through the whole auditorium. Like, people six rows over were watching me make out now because they heard me thumping on the back of this kid's chair. You were... You were juiced up on hormones. It was a race car in the red, man. I yeah, was fucking... didn't break his chair. Oh, my God. I'm surprised I didn't break a lot of things. Uh, but Matt eventually looks back at us, and then he taps Casey on the shoulder, and she looks back at us, and the movement of them catches what's-her-name's eye, and she looks back at us. And in my head, I was like, I could hear, like, Bob Barker say, you know, like, fabulous prizes and wonderful show. Like, everyone's saluting and applauding and, Rockets are flying behind us and exploding in the air. It was amazing. Um, and then we leave and we get into our own cars. Her hair, which was once, you know, hair sprayed straight up bang style is now like jettisoned in all directions. You know, my face is bright red and obviously looking like there was some like physical trauma to it, really. It looked like I got slapped in the face a bunch of times. And we go home. And I remember the distinct feeling in my car of, wait a minute. The entire time I was dating this girl, she, and I, I seriously, I remember sitting in my mom's station wagon with the vinyl fucking seats. We all had that wagon as a kid and driving home in the back seat and just thinking to myself, like, I told people I was dating this girl and nobody believed me. I was sitting with her at a theater, but unless they watched me make out with her, none of them fucking believed that I would get to kiss this girl. They probably thought she was like my cousin or something. Like, Fuck. Like, yeah. What do I have to do to get some goddamn street cred? <laughs> you know, like, why do people just default to, I didn't hook up? And then when we went to school, like, a thousand people were like, I heard from so-and-so who's heard from so-and-so who heard from that, that you were making out with some cute chick at school or at the movie theater. I was like, yeah, I was, you know, cute chick. But I realized, like, unless they had verbal confirmation telephone style from, like, eight different sources, they weren't, they're not fucking news reporters. You don't need to cross-reference sources and shit. Just right. believe me. And it really, it, that kind of feeling has kind of lived traumatically with me of like, unless someone sees the great thing I'm doing, almost, I almost overly broadcast it. No one will believe that it happened. And, you know, I know that's part of your trauma and, and, it, and it's totally understandable. I, I think when you said uh, 
they think she's my cousin or something like that. It makes me think that people, people did like you. You were actually very likable and people, like you said, Matt was your friend, right? So you actually, uh, you know, were liked by these people. So if you had been in even a lower social class of person, of person at school, they would have just spread the rumor. You can't, you can't win at that point. They would have just spread the rumor. You were kissing your cousin to amuse themselves. You know what I mean? Right. But here, so you're kind of getting to where, what happened in counseling today. Um, so she looks at me, my counselor looks at me, she's like, you dumb motherfucker. How do you process any of this shit that way? Like, of course she wasn't yelling, but she's like, how do you process this way? She's like, let me retell you that story you just told me. A neighbor girl who's known you for years meets this sophisticated stepsister that's really pretty and worldly. And her first thought is, Ed and you would be compatible, which means she has good connotations of you. Right. And then she hooks you up. What does this worldly girl from another school think when she meets you? I want to be with this guy. So she spends hours of her time calling you and sending you letters and thinking you're fantastic. And she finds any excuse to go to her stepfamily's house not a thing that usually happens. So she can spend time face to face with you. Then she invites you to a movie. Then at the movie, after you physically assaulted this bitch for like <laughs> a half an hour, she then, and you're leaning over falling on her and she's like, now I don't, you didn't tell me her size, but I'm guessing you were exponentially bigger than her. She should have been looking to get out of the way of the impending damage that was going to happen with you falling on her, not leaning over and fucking kissing you. And then, at that movie, in the lobby, before they knew you were there with the girl, these two kids, or three kids that you said were like school royalty, chatted you up in the lobby. And then you made out with this girl. She's like, did it end there? And I was like, no, we'd meet at Nordstrom's in the mall and make out in Brass Plum, like all the time. For those who don't know, Brass Plum was like a 1980s and 90s, like teenage clothing section of Nordstrom's. And we would like hide in the corner while she picked out outfits and we'd make out like in the Brass Plum, like fuck, it's gross. But this is what we had to do. We had, those were all the tools at our disposal. And she's like, and then she met you, how long did you, as like maybe six months? She's like, right. For six months, she would, like, it's hard to plan shit when you're at that age. Mm-hmm. And she would meet you at this mall because it was a central point and have you dropped off, walk through the mall with you. She wasn't hiding you. And then you would make out. Did you meet any of her friends? I was like, yeah, this one girl, Danielle, that she was friends with. She brought her out. We had lunch together at the mall. She's like, so she's like, she was hiding you. And then you tell people at school and they're passing it around the school. Like people care enough that they're like saying this to other people. And then they're coming back to you to talk to you about it. She's like, so you hear all that is this giant negative condemnation of you. Nothing that actually happened was a condemnation of you. Everything that fucking happened was like, hey, let's validate how awesome Ed is. She's like, something else about you is making you use this perceived appearance issue and unhealthiness and weight issues as some hindrance to you this was fucking blame it on the rain better than anything ever has been like i am obviously using this as a crutch it was such a fucking like wake-up call of you know i woe is me things are hard and things are fucking hard for everybody and i'm assigning my trauma this artificial thing now jared would you say i'm a uh a Pensive person or more gregarious? <laughs> Very gregarious person. Would you say that I'm withholding of information and guarded, or would you say I'm open and vulnerable? You're open and vulnerable. Wrong. 
wrong. And I didn't realize it until fucking like an hour ago. And by the way, that's not fun. Because I always prided myself if I'm very emotionally developed and mature, I give a shit. I like, I want to hear how I affect people. I don't hide from it. That might not be true. Because I've then taken all bad things and filed them under, well, Ed's unattractive. And I haven't filed them under, maybe there's a deeper issue that we need to talk about. That would be vulnerability. Hiding it under this one catch-all filing cabinet of I'm just, nobody likes the fat kid is not vulnerable. And also. Well, you're vulnerable in the fact that you are very open about the things that happen to you and how you experience them with other people. You, I think you, that where you're not vulnerable maybe is in it with yourself is you're not being honest with yourself, but with other people. And it's probably, it's par- partly a defense mechanism. I think is to, you're telling them the things and being self-effacing about them and making jokes about them before they can ever figure them out and make a joke about them. You, you know? just said, as I'm manipulative. Because that is true, and I'm not being a dick. That is true. You know, I do lead with a conversation with very self-effacing shit. Like, I don't want people to think I'm macho or arrogant or, or egotistical or narcissistic. So I, I do deflate the room. But there's a secondary part to that, which is this elephant in the room, for lack of a better expression. We need a new expression, by the way. That's not fun. But this elephant in the room of my weight issue, if I lead with that in the conversation, I've taken all the power away from it. I've now deflated right. any expectation, any uh, possible drama or awkwardness in the person's brain, or any notion of that mattering. I've now deflated the room. So I don't know if that is vulnerability or if that's still a manipulative ploy. And then lastly, how many times have, you know, you've known me my whole life. How many times in high school did I have crushes on girls? Was I prone to crushes? Sure. Yes, more than most guys. I love Well, crushes. I mean, every, I don't know. Dudes in high school have crushes. I mean, that's... I guess that's true, but I had a lot of them, and I was very vocal about them. There was no, like, secret crushes. You had one crush for, like, three years. I had, like, eight crushes, you know, a week. And with each one in my head, I would meet them. I would go up to them and give them my swarthiest line. They would reject me, and then I would sulk home. That never fucking happened one time. So is that vulnerability? Because vulnerability would be going up to them and saying, I'm taking the power and giving it to you. I am expressing to you that I think you're an amazing woman. Again, girl, I was 15. That's the <laughs> right. age appropriate. Uh, I'm giving you this gift of, I'm just going to tell you, you're, you're a very lovely person. I enjoy your time. And I'd like to spend more time with you and maybe get to know you better. And then she now has the power to either val- validate or, you know, validate my worthiness of her or to like destroy me. That's vulnerability. Play it out in my head. You're asking a hell of a lot of a high school kid. I mean, who, which high school kids do you know that do that? I mean, there are, there are those that are, that have been told by the rest of the kids that they are at the top of the, of the, of the hill of social class. Right. And they feel comfortable saying, I'm, I dig you. I think you're great because they, they think that that has a high percentage chance of, of having a good you know, response. But most kids are emotional messes and, and completely insecure. Even the, even the popular kids, a lot of them are insecure. So there, I mean, I think you're asking a lot of a high school kids to be that, you know, vulnerable in that sense. <laughs> you unwitting motherfucker. That's, I, I led you to water and the fucking horse drink. That's what I wanted you to say. 
because this is not singular to high school. This has played out in a thousand ways my entire life where I wanted to talk to so-and-so or I wanted, you know, in college to meet so-and-so or I wanted to apply for a certain job or I wanted to be seen a certain way in profession. And I didn't do it because I just decided that this is my hindrance. This is my, you know, the albatross around my neck and, and it's going to weigh me down forever. And I'm going to give it that, that power to do so. But I still weight those interactions that didn't really happen other than in my head as if they're real interactions. Now, here's the big part. Is that singular to me? No. Right. No, absolutely not. That's universal. Every human being I've ever met has that, you know, I want to talk to so-and-so, but she would never like me. Or I want to apply for this job, but you know what? Maybe two years from now. Everybody has that. It is not singular to me. That doesn't mean it doesn't still affect me and need to be addressed and, and fixed. No, and you're at an age now where you I can start to have yourself to act differently than that, right? But like, you know, junior high, high school, college, even. You know, we, I did that in college. We, you remember a person we used to call before we knew her, Lab Girl, <laughs> that I ended up dating. We had to call her Lab Girl because we were too afraid to talk to her. Right? So, like, don't talk. We need a moment of silent respect for Lab Girl. Okay. Amen. All right, go ahead. A beeping in the background, but that's great. Um, yeah, so, that, so it's, that's, you're not alone in that. That's everybody does that, you know? That's because, you know, you think of, so you, you assume. You, ha- you run that through your head. You think, oh, that person's going to reject me. You know? So I like that you said that. I like that you said, you know, everybody goes to that. And when you're young, you don't have the tools. Part of what I have struggled with is forgiveness of myself. Is while I'm going through all this trauma, while I'm going through all these fucking issues, both perceived and not perceived, because don't kid yourself. Perceived danger is every bit as impactful as real danger in your psyche. So the perceived danger of being rejected, of not being accepted, not being loved. I then punish myself for doing that, for, ha- for understanding that, oh my God, I fucked up and I should have done this differently. I think, for lack of a better expression, we need to take the weight out of every fucking thing that happens to us. Not everything needs to stay with us. Like some things are a life lesson and then you grow and you move on. But my expectation of 15 year old me can't be to be a finished product. Because 42-year-old me is not a No, yeah, of course. But, you know, full disclosure, in order to lose this weight and accomplish these goals, well, I'm not secretive about, I want to look good naked. Um, I, I want to be able to buy clothes that I like and not feel like a fraud wearing them. Like, there are very superficial, shallow reasons. I'm not going to shy from that. Why I want to lose this weight. Well, it's not, there's nothing shameful about that. If, that's, if you want to do that. Right. You, know, there's but, no, you don't have to hide that. But I'm also, a big part of it also is I understand that 42-year-olds love to just die for no reason. And overweight 42-year-olds do it all the fucking time. So I need to get my health in check too. That's all important. That's all thing. But I've done that. How many times? I mean, it'd be, it don't be like, I don't love you with your answer, but be honest. <laughs> How many times have I started a process like this in the last 20 years? I mean, I, I wasn't counting. But a lot. But yeah, it's been, yeah. It, it, yeah, you go back and forth, you know, like a lot of people, I think. I so how is this going to be different? It's going to be different if I actually conquer, like, not the outcome of being fat and not the outcome of having eaten bad foods and used food as my, uh, you know, being addicted to food, because I am. I have food addiction issues and I have mental health issues around food. I have a very unhealthy relationship there. 
not eating those foods isn't the fucking answer. That's the outcome of the answer. The answer is fixing what the fuck is fucking me up. And part of that is having these realizations, but in an environment where I'm forgiving myself for them having existed. And one of those issues for me has always been, we don't expect shit from the fat kid. If the fat kid trips and falls on his way to first, that's just part of being the fat kid. If the in-shape athlete trips and falls on his way to first and gets that thrown out and loses the game, you know, we have different expectations of you. That's bad. If, you know, it's a way of kind of, I think subconsciously changing the conversation for myself. And I need to be okay with the fact that I've realized that I've, I've hindered myself and that I'm my own worst enemy and that all this is my fault. You know, you hear fault and you want to, you want to assume that that means bad. But realistically, this is all my fault. My, all my weight issues are 100% me to blame. But that does not make me bad. I need to give myself that forgiveness of when I have these realizations, this is the same thing as when I tried to make, you know, my interaction with Tracy bad. I need to look at everything that way. I need to find why it's good. So I had this realization today that I fucked up a lot of my own interactions. Things that should have been just wholesale victories I polluted them and made them bad. That's real. Right. But yeah, that wasn't okay you fucking up an interaction. That was you just not, you were being self-defeating in your perception of, the, of what actually occurred. I, I robbed the joy of it. Right. Because that was a great moment. I mean, that was one where like, it's almost like from a movie where I should have run out of the theater with like doves flying around me as the doors opened. And it should have been grandiose, but it, it really was this thing. And, you know, that led to some heartache for me, which was all derived in my own head. But I think we all do that. We, we have these feelings of failure and we have these perceptions of failure that then weigh us down. And think about what that does to your motivation to try. And I'm not just saying try to lose weight or try to improve your lot in life, but just to try. Like if you have this all encompassing feeling of failure at every turn and you can turn right. every win into a loss, What's your motivation to go try the new job? What's your motivation to go visit the new town? Because you're just going to be the fat failure in a new fucking town. That's a great point because you ha- you know, you, you, if you have a win, you, if you turn it into a loss, like you said, that really can sap your motivation for sure. And that's absolutely what I feel like I've done. And I, don't, I didn't know it at any point until today. I mean, fuck, this would have been nice to know like circa 97, but... <laughs> Well, put it on the list, you know. Right, that's true. Youth is wasted on the young. It is, for sure. But, you know, I've had a lot of amazing experiences that I do hold as amazing, but I have a lot of amazing experiences that I don't necessarily only hold as amazing. And what what value would I get out of that negative side effect? Of the, you know, some danger, like pain is important. You put your hand on a burner and it hurts. You pull your hand off and you say, okay, don't fucking touch the burner again. But if somebody breaks your heart, and that pain hurts. You're like, I miss her. She was everything to me. And I'm a failure and a piece of shit for fucking that up. And it's because I'm fat. She couldn't really love me forever. Well, I've, A, I've just taken all the actually hard life lessons I could have learned and turned them into, put them in the I'm overweight filing cabinet and blamed it all on that and, and lost the growth aspect I could have had. But second of all, when you burn yourself on the burner and you pull your hand away, you don't miss the fucking burner. You are sad and upset because your hand hurts. Right. When you break up with somebody, they hurt you. That, that's hurt. You're rejected. That hurts. Process that shit. Live in that. Don't then project it out as I long for her and miss her and I can never be happy without her. Or I, I tried to get this new job and I didn't get it so I can never be happy because I don't have this job and that pain is singular to this job. 
that pain is a reminder of trauma and the, then you need to go repair it. Like the pain of a burn tells you I need to fix what's that damage has happened to my hand. And I now know not to touch the fucking hand again or touch the Yeah, you need, you need to be more, <laughs> you need to actually look at the circumstances of how you got burned, right? Just because mm-hmm. you get burned using the stove doesn't mean you never use the stove again. You right. know, maybe you had filled the, the pot up too high with water and start shaking it when it's boiling and that's how you got burnt. And then you're like, okay, we're never going to use the stove again. It makes no sense. Right. But that's what I do wrong in other situation. areas. Right. I have pain of like rejection. And instead of thinking, hey, you called the girl and asked her if she was DTF and she said, no, maybe girls don't like being asked if they're DTF. Like, obviously I've never done that. But, um, but that scenario, like that's an extreme version of maybe it wasn't, the deliverer of the message maybe it was the message being delivered and but that's hard again because that means i didn't understand the situation that's not fun to think about i said the wrong thing that's not fun to think about and you have to know you have to realize that sometimes you're not going to know you can't know what's going on someone else's head they're bringing their own huge bag of baggage to the situation and how they react to what you're doing It, it could be completely unknowable to you they're they're fighting their own battles they have their own things they've been through who knows what's going on so you can't you have to you have to be okay with not necessarily knowing why that interaction went bad all the time i thought you were gonna say um you know and if somebody rejects you because of the way you look you don't want them anyway that is the most bullshit fucking answer ever because if i knew somebody rejected me because of the way i look i would want them twice as much like maybe 10 times as much like fuck you diamonds aren't really scarce they're scarce because we tell you they're scarce if a woman rejected me because i was uh ugly now she's a diamond to me like i have to have that at all costs and i know i'll never get it but it'll just i'll break my heart a thousand fucking times over this person um that's just bullshit logic but the reality of the situation is none of it really matters and that's why i need to remove so much weight from everything you know tracy was a good vet if somebody else didn't believe me, well, then that's fine. That doesn't affect me. I got to kiss this girl who overlooked a lot of shit about me that I obviously couldn't even overlook. And she not only thought it was okay, she wanted to do it again and again and again. So, yeah. yeah I mean, I, you just have to be careful about asking too much of your, of your kid self, though. You know, like, I don't know if, I'm, I, don't know if I said it on the, one of the other episodes, but I know I've said it to you before if there's anything I could impart to my kids about high school, it's that this shit really doesn't matter as much as it feels like it does. These people that what they think of you and, and all of that, it, it seems like the whole world, but it's really not. And, and, but they, 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 no one has that perspective in high school. It's your whole world, especially when, when we, and when we were kids, because like you were saying, there's not, a, it was very closed. It was a very closed system. There was not, the internet as, as pervasive as it is now and, and all the social media and kids are more worldly. Now they, you know, you have, you can have your different communities. You can have online communities and have different friends. But back then it was really your neighborhood and your the kids you go to school with and that's your whole world. And what they think of you is hugely important to you, even if you don't want to admit it. No, it's true. But here's the thing. I do think there's a little misguidance in what you're saying because it isn't a big deal when you look at a 50 year snapshot. When you're 12, 14 years old and somebody says, you're ugly and dumb and I don't like you because you know, you're stinky, that, who gives a shit now? Right. At 14, that's very impactful. That's a trauma that stays with people subconsciously for a long time. 
So I think that we, you know, when I talk to, when I think about it, I, I don't want to pretend I tell other people this because I didn't realize it today. But when I look back on a lot of innocuous events that I joke about now, there is a deeper seated causal problem to that event. Because whatever caused me to take those events, it's not even about that event. That event maybe never impacted me again. But the root cause of what made me take that information and see it the way I saw it, I'm still doing that today. I'm repeating this cycle. And I don't think of myself as somebody who's not introspective and doesn't understand himself. I like to think I do in a lot of ways. But whatever was at the seed, whatever caused me to take that and make it what it was, is still doing that to me. So I don't know that this breakthrough has gotten me to a, overcome a hurdle. It's gotten me a little closer to figuring out what about me makes me do that? What about me makes me do that? Is there some sort of series of traumas from my youth or, uh, or fears that I know never overcame that are causing me to quickly file things in this cabinet and quickly remove any potential for, because if you try for the greatest of greats, you're making yourself open for the lowest of lows in anything. Yes, risk reward exists. And the higher the reward, the bigger the risk. What about me has made me so scared of believing that I can achieve those rewards that I'm afraid to take those risks. And when any even semblance of trauma happens, I have to quickly file it away and then move the fuck on. And it makes me see things in this way. It's almost like I'm validation seeking, not trying. Like if I try, I could get hurt. I don't want to get hurt. So I'm going to take a few past events subconsciously and make those the catalyst for why I refuse to try. And then I can't, I'm not leaving myself open for hurt. Now I know I won't get the highest of high rewards, but I'm also not going to get fucking devastated. And I don't think I probably would have gotten to that highest of high rewards. So again, I'm not trying to say like I've achieved something massive, but I feel like a fucking door was open that's leading me to a path of figuring out what the fuck is at the root of all this. And I've always been of the firm belief that everybody has more similarities in these terms than they like to admit. We like to be singular, that I'm more important, I'm deep. There's something brooding about me that I have this hurdle that I can't overcome and, and I'm on this journey to find it. We're all on that fucking journey to find it. Regardless of what we're trying to overcome, there's a hurdle that we can't figure out and we can accidentally achieve, but that's not gonna be sustained forever if you haven't figured out what caused you to not be able to just achieve it. So with my weight loss, I accidentally achieved it once. And then I gave it all back. So this is the first time in a long time I've had just unchecked optimism. And it's because I understand that I'm a complete fuck up in a lot of ways. <laughs> that's what's giving me the optimism because understanding that's the first step. I thought it was the finish line. I thought I was like, I'm so close to self-actualization. These counseling sessions in this podcast will push me over. And then today I realized, dude, you're at the fucking infancy of this process. So that's fine because I still, I now know one more thing I didn't know. And that's what I like everyone out there who's trying to like lose weight with me. This is not a fucking physical thing. This is 100% a mental issue. You have an addiction. You have a, a comforting aspect of food. You have a, a, a perversion in the relationship between sustainability and pleasure seeking that is making you unable to prolong success in overcoming that hurdle. So for me, the, you know, I'm doing 180 days of perfect clean eating because I believe that eating is habitual too. You start to form habits in your process because sometimes I won't even realize I've eaten something horrific for me because it's just so 
ingrained in what I do. I, I go and I have three slices of pizza when there's pizza. It's just, I've always done that. Well, I'm trying to change those habits. I'm on day 48. I have not once, and I haven't said this to anybody. I haven't once in 48 days had one item of food I didn't pre-plan that morning or have one calorie over the allotment that I had scheduled out for myself with my food calculators. Wow. 48 even, days. Even over Thanksgiving and all that, huh? Thanksgiving, I measured out my fucking turkey. And like I had stuffing, but I, I removed other things throughout the day to make those calorie allotments work. You planned and, for it. So. Yeah. And there was, I didn't expect there was pie. I didn't expect pie, but I just didn't have it. I, I love pie, but I was like, you know, if I'm not a slice of pie, am I really going to care in an hour? No. And I wasn't hungry. So I just didn't do it. 48 straight days. I have lost 26 pounds and I feel like I've lost 26 pounds. How many times? A hundred and then I find it later and I gain it all back. But I actually feel like I'm on the path this time. I feel like I can do this this time because I understand more about what is causing me to eat, what is causing me to seek a reprieve from any perceived failures or fears through you know, instant gratification and pleasure seeking. So this is good. Today was very good for me. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you feeling like you're opening a door on the right path to figuring it all out. That's, I mean that's what the whole thing's about, right? That's, that's, that's amazing. Right. And don't be confused tomorrow morning. I'll probably wake up. I mean, very realistically wake up and like look in the mirror and be like, you made it 48 days. That's a lot. You still have 132 days left to go on your little plan here. That's even more. And you lost 26 pounds. You still have a lot of those 26 pound losses to go before you're where you want to be. And while I have made progress and I feel good that I opened the door today, there will be a time tomorrow and the next day and the next day where I look at it and I'm like, but fuck you, even though you open the door, you still have just opened the door to the journey. That's the very beginning of so far to go. It's so daunting. But the good thing is that's why I'm, A, I'm setting up food habits. B, that's why I'm writing down what I eat. And C, that's why I'm talking about this shit. So that when I'm in those moments where I lose perspective of the reality of the situation and I start to self-loathe and I start to feel far from my goals, I have now, just like I've always had built-in crutches to excuse poor performance, I now have built-in crutches to enable good performance, which is these things I'm doing now. So this is good. This is a big day for me. Uh, again, I'm not going to not have more of these days, but I had to come home and put the, our other episode we recorded on the back burner. Yeah, I mean, anything important or difficult or complex that anyone achieves ever is a series of wins and setbacks and perseverance you know it's like it's not going to just be of course you have more to go but it's those wins are very important so right so that's why i want to share this one i because again we all like to think our journey is singular but every time i hear somebody else talk about their issue i'm like fuck that resonates so much with me um and i think this is one that everybody facing this challenge is going through which is the perception error of we even strip good things away from ourselves with self-punishment. Whereas we need to step the fuck back and really look at the situation through the right kind of eyes and start to forgive yourself and start to just understand that you're okay. And that, that this is going to be a process, but you'll get there. So that's it for today. I mean, I'm running out of the shit to say. So <laughs> um, thanks for dropping everything and jumping on from with No me. problem. No problem. Enjoy that shit. Talk to you later. Yeah, you too. We are... We're
We don't stand a chance We don't stand a chance This ball won't last We don't stand a chance Same guy who collects your rent Signs a paycheck you already spend at the store he owns, bought your baby a very nice present. Now you on credit, he's eager to land. We don't stand a chance. We don't stand a chance. This too shall pass. We don't stand a chance. You can play the game, but it is not relent. Or get crushed beneath with indifference Or join the machine with me, my friend uh, And live a dream again uh -huh. Cause there's no equality There's a balance that's different For every angel you see There's a devil that's been sand There is no morality And I submit to my defense That I'm talking about the ultimate tolerance And it may sound strange in the present tense But we're all one in this existence And it's all good to use the modern parlance Cause baby, we don't stand a chance Events and sinners always get busted for they repent. Well, I got a solution. Let me outline my stand. 